0: You and I uh, live in a post truth society. Our descent into our c- current form of cultural confusion began in 1965 when the French philosopher Michel Foucault published Madness and Civilization in America arguing that rationality was a coercive, quote, regime of truth that elites in power use to coercively control the masses. That idea was seized upon by countercultural academic elites, and over the next several decades, it spread from college campuses into popular culture, to the point that most people under the age of 50, and almost everybody at our South Insight, now intuitively believe, quote, that truth claims are language games tinged with imperial ambition. The original designers of the World Wide Web sought to overcome those imperial ambitions, of the elite institutions that kind of controlled information in the West by crowdsourcing truth via the unregulated Internet. They believed that the democracy of online access would result in increasingly accurate universal truths. This is the idea behind Wikipedia. Uh, And not only Wikipedia, it's really the driver behind Google's search algorithm, which prioritizes websites based on how many other websites linked to them. But that ideal didn't materialize because an exhaustive study of Twitter usage from 2006 to 2016 showed that falsehood spreads 70% faster and 100% farther than truth on the internet. And why is that? Well, it's because, as Greg Tenelshoff observes in the quote that we've put on your front of your bulletin from his perfectly named book about self deception, I Told Me So, life offers me a deal. The beliefs I have about myself and others do not need to be true to bring me satisfaction. I only need to believe them. You see, it turns out that just as like an invasive uh, species of fish can choke out the native inhabitants of a stream or a lake, falsehoods regularly crowd out truth on the Internet. Consequently, many of our contemporaries are deeply skeptical that humans can even know what's true anymore. Historical facts are considered fake news while conspiracy theories flourish. Now, it might surprise you to learn that God's Word affirms our skepticism. Romans 1.18 says, "'For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth.'" You see, the problem with our generation isn't that we've become too cynical about the truth claims of others. It's that we have not become cynical enough about our own willingness to admit what's true. Adults are voluntary learners. Most of us make decisions today based on how we want to feel instead of based on a shared set of facts. We choose a group that we want to belong to, we determine what they believe, and then we search the internet for facts that confirm our feelings and we exclude those who don't shore up our confidence that we're right. And the search algorithms only make this easier. That's how we end up in these echo chambers because they know we won't look for things that counter fact, fact our beliefs. But here's the problem with that approach. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. And in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. You see, feeling right isn't a good indicator of being right because sin has so damaged our ability to perceive reality that we can no longer rely on ourselves to discern truth from error. The theological name for this is the noetic effect of sin. Your sin has affected the way that you think. But our inability to perceive truth doesn't prove that truth doesn't exist. On an island full of colorblind people, strawberries are still red and blueberries are still blue, even though everybody on the island perceives them to be gray and black. The sole authority in a world full of truth blind people is the one being who exists who can see everything the way it actually is. Hebrews 4.13 tells us who that person is. No creature is hidden from God, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Our Creator knows exactly what is true about everything in the entire creation, and He's not keeping it to Himself. Look again at Romans one. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. Why does God get angry when we refuse to acknowledge the truth? Why does that stir up His wrath? Because our refusal to do so does harm both to ourselves and to our neighbors, which brings us to the ninth commandment we're looking at today. Exodus 20, 16 says, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. This command originally applied to how God wanted us to speak in the courtroom, but it also applies to how we speak in the classroom and the boardroom and the bedroom. Whenever we utter a falsehood, we are uttering it against someone, and it's doing harm. Often the person we're harming is ourselves. Of course, there are several ways that we can give false testimony against our neighbors. Some of us like to slander others. We are quick to spread a bad report about others online or in person or on the phone in an effort to garner the attention of those around us and to bolster our prideful sense that we would never do something so immoral or foolish as that person. This is why Ben Sass had to call his book about Christian political engagement, Them. Because he knew, as a believer in Washington, our propensity to do this. This cultural moment is such that slander has become a form of truth-telling. Anytime you find yourself saying, well, I'm just saying, you might want to check yourself. It's very likely that you're just saying something incredibly self-righteous or judgmental or condemning. Or loveless. Whether or not it's true is irrelevant. We assume it's true, and we spread it because we didn't do it, and it makes us feel superior. Others flatter, giving compliments to people we don't really believe in order to acquire the social capital we need to manipulatively accomplish our will Whether it's at work or at church or at home, we tell people what they want to hear in order to get them to do what we want them to do, which often is to leave us alone, to not notice what's really going on with us, to not attend to particularly to our lives. I exaggerate. My desire to live a superlative life drives me to take credit for things I had very little to nothing to do with, while simultaneously minimizing facts about me that are unflattering and yet 100% true. This has caused Holly to adopt this very important strategy when she and I get into an argument. Many years ago, Holly figured this out. She says to me, listen, Mark, I know I can't want to fight with you, but you know that I'm right, and so I'm going to stop talking to you about this until you're ready to come back and acknowledge what's true, and then tell me what you're going to do about it. Which is an awful and great way to win a fight with me, because she knows that I know that she's right. She just knows that I think faster on my feet than she does. And so I'm going to be able to circle around this thing that she's trying to bring up and say, oh yeah, but what about this? Or it's like when you do that and try to change the subject. So why do we do that? Why do we spread falsehoods, whether by slander or by um, flattery or by exaggeration or evasion? We do it because we're afraid. You see, our deepest desire is to be fully known and completely loved. Our deepest fear is to be fully known and rejected. And that fear is what drove our first parents into hiding from the truth. When our first parents fell for the original lie, look at what happened. Genesis 3, 2-12. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, said the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for attaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Do you see what's happening here? As soon as we believed the lie that we could be the source of our own truth, we embarked on a course of action that promised life, but led to death. And we immediately experienced the fear of rejection, created fig leaf briefs to cover our shame, went into hiding, and started fabricating stories to shift blame from us to those around us. And we're still doing it. This is why Paul has to warn his Colossian congregation in Colossians 2, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. But remember why God gave these people these Ten Commandments in the first place. In Exodus 20, 1 and 2, we read this, Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. You see, God's given us these commandments because He wants to set us free from captivity to lying, both to ourselves and to other people. So how does he do that? Well, he does it by becoming human so that he could show us the truth in a way that would remove our guilt and shame. Jesus explained why he came this way in John 8, 31 and 32. If you continue in my word, you are really my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what is it? What is this truth that sets us free? Well, John fourteen, six and 7, this truth is actually a person. Jesus told them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. If you want to know the truth, you can look at him. He's become human. He's walked among us so that we'll know deep in our souls what's eternally true about God. So, how does God incarnate free us from a lifetime of lying, both to ourselves and others? Well, He begins by introducing us to a hard truth. We see this clearly in Jesus' interaction with Peter on the night he was betrayed. A night that began with a conversation recorded for us in Matthew twenty six thirty one 31-35, where we read this. Then Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you will fall away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter was self-deceived. He was comparing himself favorably to the other disciples, and he was in the midst of a self-righteous delusion. And so, what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus could see straight through Peter's delusion, and so he gave Peter a hard truth. Luke 22, 31, 34 says, Jesus responded, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, if Peter had been gospel sane at this moment, when Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, Peter would have responded, And you said no, right? I mean, did you say no? Please tell me you said no. But instead, Peter says, verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and death. He is still not getting it. And so Jesus has to be even more clear. And with compassionate sorrow in his heart, verse 34, Jesus responds, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. And that's exactly what happened. When push came to shove, Peter bore false witness. Luke 22, 54, they seized him and led Jesus away and brought him into the high priest's house while Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, This man was with him too. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, You're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, This man was certainly with him, since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the words of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Here's the question I want us to think about today. What was the look on Jesus' face when he turned to look at Peter? The look you see on the face in your mind during the scene tells you a lot about what you really believe about God. Was it a look of anger or contempt or smug, I told you so, condemnation? or just deep disappointment. Was the God who fully knew Peter rejecting him at his moment of uncovering? No. This moment changed Peter's life. So what did he see? He saw a look full of compassionate disappointment mingled with determined love. This is why Jesus had come. To seek and to save the self-deceived deceivers. To set us free from the lies that so easily entangle us. Particularly the ones that we falsely believe about ourselves. Peter's deceptions were not a surprise to Jesus they were why they came why he came and so after peter left that courtyard jesus went into the temple court faced false witnesses allowed himself to be wrongly convicted for blasphemy when he admitted under oath that he was the christ allowed himself to be sent before pilate who asked him what is truth and then submitted to an execution as an act of political expedience under a sign that read King of the Jews while wearing a crown of thorns that Herod's men had beaten onto his head so that Peter could know deep in his heart that Jesus fully knew him to be the liar that he was and loved him anyway. That Jesus' affection was greater than Peter's deception. Look again at what Jesus said to Peter in the upper room, which Peter didn't remember, right? He remembered that Jesus said, oh, you'll deny me three times before the cock crows. But he had forgotten that Jesus said this, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers, Simon's faith in what? Himself? No, that needed to fail. Simon had too much faith in himself. No, Simon's faith in the gracious and unconditional love of the sinless Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. So, how exactly did Jesus restore Peter so that he could minister to his brothers? Well, he did it by taking Peter to a place Peter did not want to go. After a night of fruitless fishing, the resurrected Jesus appeared on the shore and provided a miraculous catch of fish the way he had when he began his relationship with Peter. And then Jesus cooked them and started distributing loaves and fishes to his disciples the way he had done during the feeding of the 5,000. And John tells us what happened next. John 21 When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. Now, this is one of those times in the Bible when English lets us down. The Greek word for love here, there are two different words being used for the word love here. There's the agape love of God... And there's the phileo love of man, the brotherly love that we have for one another. And this is how this actually reads. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? He said to him, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? And he said to him, Lord, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you phileo me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, notice where this conversation is taking place. Around a fire. Which is where Peter's denial took place. Smell has an interesting effect on memory. And after the second time Jesus asked, Peter knew what he was doing. And when he did it a third time, he really got it. Hey, you remember how you said, like, even if all these others fall away, you never would, that you would go to prison and death with me? You remember that? And how I said to you that you were going to deny me three times, and you said, no, 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 no way that's going to happen. Do you love me more than these And his answer was, no. No, I don't. I I certainly don't agape you. I don't love you the way you love me. And I, at best, love you as much as these guys do. I love you like them. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And he did it two more times. Why? Because the clear thing that Jesus wants us to feed our sheep is that he agapes us while we phileo him that His love for us is deeper and higher and wider and longer than our love for Him. In fact, it is beyond all measure. And when we truly grasp this fact, deep in our souls, we can be set free from the need to hide behind lies. John describes what this looks like in 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2, when he explains, this is the message that we heard from Jesus and declare to you, God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in Him. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we're lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all all sin." if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This then is what Jesus is inviting us to today, to come out of hiding and to live in the light of our need of grace that we so naturally resist like Peter And instead of trying to cover ourselves with the fig leaf briefs that we make in our own effort, why don't we let the blood of Jesus shed not only for Peter but for us, cleanse us of all unrighteousness and remove our shame so that we no longer have to live in fear of rejection before the one before whom everything is going to be uncovered and laid bare. The judge of all the earth is Jesus, the one that we're going to give an account to, the one who's going to see everything we've ever thought or said or done, the one whose eyes we're going to look into when uh, Kierkegaard says uh, it strikes midnight on, on humanity and we've got to take off our masks. That person, if, like Peter, we're willing to say, I phileo you, you agape me, smiles and says, yeah, I know. It's what makes you simultaneously unworthy and worth it to me. I was looking for you. I wanted you. I came and sought you when you weren't seeking me. And believing that changes the way that we speak. Paul says we then are able to speak this way in Ephesians 4, 14. We will no longer be like little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. You see, when we understand that we're fully known and fully loved by Christ, we no longer need to cling to fearful fantasies about ourselves or others. Instead, in humility, we can admit our deep need of grace to God and then give the grace that we receive from God to those around us as out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speak. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would You come and deliver us from self-deception that we might be free from being deceived. Would You fill us with the deep sense of of your unconditional affection for us, so that we can uncover ourselves and feed your sheep the grace we receive from you as we speak the truth and love to those around us. We ask this in your name. Amen.